0: Hey, you're listening to Talking With Tosh, the podcast where we talk about life, entertainment, politics, crime stories, and almost everything in between. This podcast is designed to make you say, what the did I just listen to? If that sounds exciting, hit subscribe and let's get this show started. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Talking with Tash. As most of you know, I'm into horror films and a lot of super morbid things. However, I think what makes me such a horror film connoisseur is that I acknowledge every angle of a horror story. And one of the things I love about horror is that it doesn't have to be a story about a mass killer or a demonic force. It can simply be about fear. Sometimes fear can be something as simple as, I don't know, being afraid to drive over a bridge or the fear of living near an airport because of the fear of pollution in the air. There's a very human aspect to horror films, and I also think that there's a lot of fear in something that is unknown or something that doesn't have a definite answer or resolution, you know? So this brings me to today's topic, which is unsolved New York City crime stories you probably never heard of. There are so many stories about New York City and some have been told a million times, but the stories I'm sharing with you today, I guarantee you've never heard of them. So let's start with the story of, well, the death of Polish immigrant, Henrik Siwiak. Now remind you, I might be butchering his name just a tiny bit, but anyway, let's get on with the story. So Henrik Siwiak was a Polish immigrant who moved to New York City for a better life. He had a sister who lived in Queens, New York, so he migrated to New York City from Poland, and he worked all these odd jobs to support his family back home. Now, this is what most immigrants do to support their families when they come to New York or come to America in general. So this is just pretty normal behavior. So... Henrik started his day with an assigned job in downtown Manhattan, which happened to be on September 11th, 2001. Now Henrik woke up that morning and he started his regular morning train commute. He arrived in Manhattan to a peaceful morning. And if you're from New York, we all remember 9-11 so clearly because it was really a beautiful day. Like honestly, it really was. But, however, for Henrik, little did he know that within an hour or so, the entire world would totally change. Like, seriously change. As Henrik carried on with his morning routine, he actually witnessed a plane hit the World Trade Center and he watched all the chaos unfold. Now, clearly, that morning, his assigned job in that area was canceled because Lower Manhattan was in total mayhem. Which, of course, had his family in Poland super concerned about his whereabouts and his safety. And the same could be said about Henrik's sister, who was living in Queens at the time. She was also concerned and wanted to know, you know, like where he could be that morning because she knew he was in that part of Manhattan. However... Henrik managed to make it out of the downtown Manhattan area, and he headed towards a temp temp agency that happened to be in Brooklyn. Now, remind you, this temp agency was somewhere in Brooklyn, and they worked with a lot of Polish immigrants to help them find either uh, permanent or temporary jobs. So with that being said, um, they gave him a job opportunity that evening at a Pathmark supermarket in Brooklyn on Utica Avenue. Um, so I know you're probably thinking the world is upside down. Why would he be so eager to work on such a horrific day? Well, the truth was that Henrik was determined to work and continue to support his family. It was who he was, according to his friends, and he wasn't going to let anything stop him from being a provider. So with that being said, after accepting the job for that evening, he eventually spoke to his family back at home and his sister to let them know, hey, I'm safe. I'm sound. And this I know it sounds a little crazy. And um, he lets his sister know and his family that, you know, he'll be working that evening. So at this point, Henrik isn't really familiar with New York City. Well, at least not with the MTA system. He may know his way around New York City slightly, but like most of you know, the train routes out here can be very, very complicated if you're not from here. So, of course, he seeked direction from a coworker. And here's where the story goes really, really left. So he received directions to Utica Avenue, but the Utica Avenue train stop, but the path mark was at least three miles up on Utica. So he really didn't get off at that stop. So it's possible that a bus or another train stop would probably have allowed him to be a little bit closer to his destination, but you know, he wasn't aware. So for that reason, it's possible he may have asked for directions once he got there and went walking around trying to find his way. Now, for all my younger audience or just people who aren't familiar with New York, you know, first and foremost, there wasn't Google Maps at the time or any smartphones. So you really had to read the train map or ask for help. And for that reason, it was reported that Hemrick walked along Fulton Street and then Albany Avenue. And during this time in the early 2000s, this area was considered a hotspot for drugs super gang activity, and just a whole bunch of other problems. So, reminder, during this time, the neighborhood was considered bad, and it was so bad that the precinct that served that district was so overwhelmed and backed up with several drugs and homicide cases that they were totally in disarray. However, Henrik, not a native New Yorker, wasn't really privy to this information. And again, he's taking a job at 11 p.m., at a midnight shift, rather, at Pathmark in the Sketchiest neighborhood in Brooklyn at the time. So, on this particular night, neighbors heard an argument and then gunshots. Now, the people in the neighborhood were used to this type of thing, and, you know, they were afraid to look out their windows or step outside their doors to see, like, what was really going on. However, one neighbor waited until it was safe, and then when she stepped outside her door to see Henrik, he was on the floor, well, on the ground, bleeding in front of her house on Decatur Street. Now, she found Henrik at 11.42 p.m., so you would probably think that, you know, this was a robbery. But according to the detectives, There was nothing stolen from Henrik, nothing. His wallet was still on him with his money inside, his identification, his credit cards, everything was still there. Now, even his jewelry is on him at this point. So it's not clear if his jewelry was worth anything and they just decided to leave it there. But pretty much the killer or killers didn't take anything from Henrik. Now, remember this happened on 9-11 and on this particular day, it was an all hands on deck order placed to all the precincts and fire departments in New York City. This also included a call to all retired officers and firefighters to report to work as the city searched for the 9-11 survivors and try to recover bodies. Now, for this reason, Henrik's murder wasn't really a priority as New York City was really upside down. And not to mention, the area where Henrik was murdered already had a stack of homicide cases. So, I mean, they were still trying to solve those cases. So until this day, his case has remained opened and it's labeled as a code case. Now, there has been no strong evidence to identify anyone in this case and no person of interest. So NYPD has determined that this case was most likely gang related or gang initiations. Now, Henrik was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. But his sister, you know, she wants the case reopened. And Henrik is the only person who died on 9-11 that wasn't 9-11 related. And it's sad that he really, it's like kind of weird because he witnessed the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center only to be terrorized by people in Brooklyn later that night and murdered. So... Unfortunately, this is probably one of the stories you've never heard. Okay, so now, Isidore Fink. This is our new story. All right, so our next story brings us to Harlem, East Harlem, to be super precise, in 1929, where laundry mat owner Izzy Fink is found Now, granted, I might be saying his name wrong because he was an immigrant, and. I forgot what country he came from, but I'm pretty sure it was pronounced different. So I am butchering it. So anyway, <laughs> this story is extremely mysterious because there was no motive and no way into his apartment. I know, confusing, right? Well, let me explain. So neighbors heard screaming and yelling. Now they ran out to get help. And when the cops arrived, they couldn't get into Isidore's apartment. Now there's no answer. The windows are nailed shut, and so is the door. So, was this a murder, or was this simply a suicide? Now, remember, neighbors heard yelling and screaming. Is it possible that Isadora had a mental breakdown and was yelling and talking to himself, or was there someone else actually there? Now, the problem is neighbors never confirmed if there was more than one voice or not. So, also remember that Isadora is found dead in his apartment and it was nailed shut yes it was nailed shut from the inside not the outside so the windows the doors all of this is nailed shut so this is where it gets super confusing so it gets weirder because remember the cops are the cops are trying to get into his apartment, so the officers decided to break a window because that seemed to be much easier than trying to break down the door because there was no luck with trying to break down his door. So, of course, I'm assuming they go through the window, glass shattered, but boom, they're inside the apartment. So now, once inside the apartment, they find Isidore on the floor of his tenant, tenement apartment with three gunshot wounds. Now, no gun was found in the house or near the building. Now the apartment was also searched up and down for a possible secret door compartment, but none was found. So this case of course was never solved and the people or persons involved is like long gone. But this murder is a mystery on another level because, as I mentioned, before, there was no motive to kill Isidore. Like, the money the money he collected from his laundry mat that day after closing, he carried it home with him to his tenement apartment. And when they found him dead, the money was still on him. And although he wasn't a really flashy man, he was an immigrant with a small business, so which made him a small business owner. And, I mean, he didn't have much valuable items. And whatever he could have had in his home, they said it seemed super untouched. So neighbors said, you know, you know, he was a nice, kind and very likable guy and he didn't have any enemies. So he was possibly like a loner, although it was confirmed. Um, Although it was confirmed, but he wasn't described as having several friends or being around several people. He was like most immigrants in the 1920s who worked and went home. You also have to keep in mind that in 1929, it was the year of the Wall Street crash and the beginning of what we now know as the Great Depression. So it was a different time where I assume people were having a hard time. People didn't make you know, didn't have much of a life because the world was going through like disease and famine and markets were crashing and so on. So as I conclude this particular story, I wanted to share that his apartment where all of this took place was located at 52 East 33rd Street. Now, I've never been to this location, so I don't know if the building still exists because in New York City, so many structures are being demolished and so many new buildings are like, going up so i'm not sure if it exists but if you happen to visit the biggest murder mystery let me know and keep in mind that it's still trespassing um so you still need to kind of move with caution because i don't know who lives there and as for the laundry mat he owned well that was located on Four east 132nd street Now, as for my thoughts on the case, the only logical solution I came up with was there's a chance that Isidore was very cautious about people and because they were struggling during his time in East Harlem and you know at the time there was a lot of Italian gangs mobsters Irish mobsters and because the neighborhood was considered unsafe he probably always kept his windows you know nailed shut which makes me believe that he could have been approached by someone in his building and he could have been a potential robbery victim and an argument or something must have happened or took place and Isidore probably ran away. And was shot by the assailant. Now, he probably quickly got in his door. And although he was shot three times, his adrenaline, you know, could have been really high. And, you know, as he shut his door, he probably had a hammer or a nail that was like somewhat near the door. And he ended up nailing the door shut. I know that seems like super far fetched. But when your adrenaline is really high, it's like for some reason your body just goes into this like fight or flight mode. So I'm assuming, you know, he locked himself in and just, I don't know, maybe just died right there on the floor. You know, he could have just collapsed and just died on the floor. And that's why there were no, you know, guns nearby. Um, You know, that's just my only logical thought, because in my mind, there was no secret doors. There were no crawl space in apartments unless it was overlooked. I don't know. But do you think it's possible for it to play out the way I figured it played out? Or do you think it was a little far-fetched? Or do you think something else sinister could happen? You know, because this is like a super murder mystery, but it also can be like a demonic force. I don't know. Maybe I've seen too many horror movies like The Conjuring. So, yeah. But anyway, if you want to discuss more about this case, you can always hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. Well, formerly known as Twitter. Now it's called X. You love Tashi, the letter U, L-O-V-E-T-A-S-H-I. So maybe you can join me on another episode where we could discuss this case in further detail. Okay, you guys. So that is two of New York City's biggest unsolved. Well, I won't even say their biggest because no one has even heard of these, but these are New York City's unsolved crime cases. Um, There's one more story I wanted to share, which is the story of Paul C. Because I feel like no one really knows about Paul C. um, Or his death or how he died or anything. Because it's just so unknown at this point. Um, I did a lot of research. I went through a whole bunch of archives and stuff. And everything was kind of repetitive. And in case you don't know who Paul C. is, Paul C. is... Uh, Real name is Paul McCasty. He died in 1989. He was murdered in Queens, New York, um, in the Rosedale section of Queens. Uh, And he was, like, probably the coolest white boy in the 80s. Uh, If you don't know, he worked with Queen Latifah on the track All Hail the Queen. Um, He also worked with Kwame. He worked with Biz Marquis. Um, I actually think that he produced and engineered... um, I think, Just a Friend by Biz Marquis. I think that's one of his well-known, you know, songs he, you know, is credited on. But, yeah, so Paul C., I kind of feel like, needs a whole entire episode for himself where—well, not for himself, but a whole entire episode where we could talk about, like, his accomplishments, his achievements— um, and then most importantly, his murder. And um, like I said, I need to do a little bit more research because everything was very repetitive. But it's the story that I feel like no one ever talks about or no one even knows who he is. You know, so I think that deserves an entire episode for itself. So I think, if anything, we're going to do an episode on Palsy, the life and death of Palsy. That's probably going to come really, really soon. Uh, So I hope you tune into that. And in the meantime, Google him, you know, and just get to see who he who he was, because he was only about 24 and he was so accomplished at the age of 24. Like this guy was so into his craft that he converted his parents garage into a studio. You know, so it was just like he took it very serious. And like I said, at 24, he is credited on a lot of production and engineering side of a lot of your favorite tracks or albums. So, yeah. And like I said, he died tragically and died at his home. He was murdered. And like I said, that was in 89. It's 2024. And that case is still unsolved. So... We have to dig real deep into that story in another episode, just the episode for that by itself. So anyway, you guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to probably hear more of these crime stories, I'll share some in the future. Um, until then, you guys have a blessed one and I can't wait for you to come back for the next episode. Peace. If you enjoyed this show and you want to hear more of Talking With Tosh, make sure that you subscribe on your favorite streaming service to get all future notifications of brand new episodes.